This is Do Good and Do Well, the podcast for people who want to make a positive difference in the world without losing themselves in the process. I'm Sarah Fox, life and leadership coach, and in this podcast, I'll be sharing stories from social and creative entrepreneurs and leaders to help inspire you as a change maker to do good and do well. Hi everyone and welcome to the Do Good and Do Well podcast. Before I talk about my brilliant guest, Sue Mayo, I just wanted to check in with you. How are you today? How are you doing? How well are you feeling? I have been thinking a lot this week about radical responsibility. In particular, how do we take radical responsibility for our own well-being. I don't know about you but sometimes I can find myself in victim mode and feeling really stuck, not quite sure what my next steps are, thinking oh it's not fair and sometimes it isn't fair. But one of the things I've really been trying to do particularly in the mornings is to tune into how I'm really feeling, not just what I'm thinking about but how I'm feeling and how I feel in my body and then asking myself the question, what do I need to do today to feel better? Or sometimes, what do I need to do today just to get through it? Sometimes, what do I need to do today to thrive? But really thinking about that in the morning and setting an intention, and I think for me, taking radical responsibility for my own well-being is prioritising it and thinking that I have a choice, I can choose what I do. You know, there are massive challenges. I'm working at home. I am homeschooling two children with my husband. He's working as well. It's not always easy But who else will do it? Who else will make those choices? My question to you is, what does taking radical responsibility for your well-being look like? What steps we can take to make sure that people are recognising the needs of everyone, people who are leading organisations? Do you know what well-being needs of your team are? Do they have space to be able to talk about them and are you sharing your well-being needs with your team are you saying what it is that you need because I think often we can expect others to know and we expect them to create a space for us to be able to say that but sometimes that's not the case and maybe radical responsibility is saying okay I need to share that I need to make sure that people know what it is I need so that I can do the best job and there's also questions around bigger structures and systems and how we can take radical responsibility for our own well-being within that within systems that aren't built for us with people who aren't always listening so I don't know if this is resonating but that's my question to put out there really what does taking radical responsibility for your own well-being look like for you and I'd love to hear your responses and you can come into my free Facebook group to talk about that or you can send me a message on Twitter or I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn and all of those places but I'd really like a dialogue about that. What does radical responsibility for well-being look like on both an individual personal level day to day but also in the long term and in the bigger systems that we operate in. Okay, so today I am talking to the very lovely Sue Mayo. Sue is an artist who works with communities and focuses particularly on intergenerational work. 
With arts organisation Magic Me, she developed the Women's Project and has led annual projects with them over the last 14 years with young women and older women in Tower Hamlets. She set up the Gratitude Inquiry in 2014, developing projects that explored reciprocity and gratitude in partnership with Oval House, Magic Me and Synonym Garden. And Sue also teaches applied theatre at Goldsmiths. And as well as that, she works with organisations to help them to reflect and evaluate their work Sue is one of the most lovely human beings I have the pleasure to know and I was really looking forward to us having this conversation. I really hope that lots of things resonate for you. Enjoy. Good afternoon, Sue Mayo. Welcome to my Do Good and Do Well podcast. How are you today? Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I'm very well today. Thank you. I'm working from home, not surprisingly, but that means I've been able to also start making some soup and Mm. venture into my really muddy garden and come straight in again because it's too muddy to garden. But I I quite like that about working from home, Mm. having a bit of a rhythm of uh, working on something and then taking a little break with something practical. Yeah. Can I ask what soup you're making? I am making sweet potato and ginger soup. Oh, I've never had that. Well, it seems to me very good in this weather. Yeah. To have lots of ginger and lots of orange things. Mm. Yeah, I really like at the moment just ginger and lemon in hot water. It does feel very warming. Anyway, (laughs) we're not here to talk about soup and orange things, although they're important. So, Sue, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, So I have a double life at the moment. I teach at Goldsmiths. I teach a master's in applied theatre, so theatre with communities in education, in social settings, in prisons, that kind of thing. So I'm quite engaged in thinking about the field of work, um, thinking about the ethics and what collaboration means and having an amazing group of international students who really make me ask more questions every year. And kind of through that work, that's led me to do some reflective work as well with organisations. But I also am a practitioner and I make work, I guess I started very much in theatre, but now I would use visual art, writing, poetry, dance, any art form really. I think working across art forms is brilliant mostly with community groups and my particular kind of specialism is working intergenerationally so bringing together people of different generations Mm. to do creative work together in a way that doesn't reinforce their age but actually liberates people from those categories so that they can just be a bunch of creative people in a room so that's kind of what I've been doing for a long time now. I first met you, I don't know how many years ago it was, but I was doing my master's and my supervisor suggested that I come and talk to you. And I remember you were so generous with your time and sharing the knowledge that you have and then I came to see a piece that you were doing if it was at the women's library and I remember just seeing the work and thinking about how much care and love was in this room and I and I talked to a couple of the women who were participating and it just really felt like their space and you were there holding that space, holding that process, but it was it was theirs. It belonged to them. Really interesting. Yeah. I think I very I've probably developed and changed this over the years, but I would say that I I think that it's through real care and attention to the detail of what's going on in the room and how people are and, and where each person is up to. I think that attention to detail actually feeds through into what you make together 
And I see a very strong connection between a big issue, like somebody saying there's a lot of isolation among older people, that the really moment by moment process in a project where you are trying to create lots of bridges between people, lots of opportunities for conversation, making together, listening to each other, watching each other, everything that kind of knits the fabric back together that I would see that doing that in a room is in, is absolutely a response to worrying about the isolation of older people. Mm. I'm not a, a strategic kind of uh, big picture person, really. I want to be attending to that. I'm very, I care a lot about those issues, but I think the place where I can be attending to that is in the room with people. Mm. And I, I think it's very important. I absolutely love to see people defrosting and shedding the person they thought they would have to perform if they were coming to a drama project or a film project, or if they had to sort of be, I'm, a, I'm an EastEnder, you know, or I'm a Bangla girl. There's a kind of beautiful shedding of the outer layer that people arrive with once they relax and understand it's about conversation and about dialogue and about surprising each other uh, so I'm I'm really devoted to that mm. kind of work. Mm. I have two questions that have come up for me as the practitioner is that you know the person who has started that process what shedding needs to happen for you you know ha- what, and and um all the masks that we wear in our daily lives like how easy is it to shed in those spaces and then secondly how is that working now because we're not in the same room as people yeah I think that those are two really good big questions I I think there's a necessary protection for practitioners and so I would say it's it's always important to remember that you also have a role and a responsibility in the room mm. and that actually just kind of becoming a participant isn't the way to do it. But I'm also aware that in particular with a group I've worked with for nearly 15 years now, which is the Women's Intergenerational Project at Magic Me, I feel I can be myself. There are older women who've been coming for 10 years to that project not everybody repeats, but some people come back the next year. We generally work with different younger women, but I've known them a long time. They've known me. They've known me when a childcare issue meant that I had to bring my son with me in a half-term project. Mm. They've known me when something difficult had happened. For me, they've seen me have to say to them, actually, we do have a deadline. Let's get moving and finish this piece of work. So I feel very much in that situation. I'm able to be myself, but it doesn't stop the fact that I have a responsibility and I'm trying to keep an eye out for the whole room, for the group, not just for individuals. What's the life of the group at this moment? So I guess it is a, it's a dynamic balance. What I feel I don't wish to be part of is for example on a project where I was directing a big youth theatre show the stage manager said to me I've got a fantastic trick through I just get some old crockery from a charity shop and and we'll put it out as if it's like for tea and then when you're really cross with them you sweep it off the table and it crashes to the floor and they can really see how angry you are with them And I just remember thinking, what an extraordinary way to behave. But he was committed to the performance of a director, that the the director must perform rage sometimes with a a youth theatre, you know, with or with Mm. actors. Um, And I can remember working in a theatre in their education department and my my little cubbyhole of an office was next to the place where all the technical crew sat. And the technical crew just slagged off actors all the time. And I said to them once, it's such a drag that you do this. Why, you know, aren't they part, you're part of the same thing? And they went, oh, it's just something we do. You know, it doesn't really matter. And there's something about the performing roles in those ways, which I feel is a really negative, really difficult thing. And I think working in community and collaborative arts, you do need to be more open to absorbing 
what's going on with the group to following what's going on with the group and not not coming in with your big overcoat on and refusing to take it off. I think there will always be moments when you do just have to take it off, put your feet up. I can remember a project where a participant had quite limited spoken English. Her understanding was fine, but she was nervous about speaking English. And one day I was sitting with her at a table having a cup of tea and a break. And we just started to play the game where you layer your hands one over the other and then you pull your hand out and put your hand on the top. And then a couple of the younger women came and joined us. And I think it was the turning point in the project for her. She felt able to be playful and everybody laughed and it was a kind of safe touch. And that that's not thinking, what's my role at this moment? Not thinking, how am I going to facilitate this person? It was just a human response and it made a bridge for her into the project. The story you just said about the director, I witnessed that very early on in my career when I worked in a college in the performing arts department and that hierarchical, the power, the status and... There was lots of swearing at the young people who were doing the course. You know, that was kind of like my first experience in, a, in an organisation and um, in a way a very useful one because it taught me how I don't want to be in the world yes. and how I don't work. Mm. Um, mm. But, yeah, I think you're right. What's the difference between a performative role and a role of responsibility that means that people and the group are taken care of? Yes, yes. Uh, I worked once on a very interesting project where they there were six groups of young people, each working with a different director, but then the pieces were put together by the artistic director of the company of the youth theatre. And when it came to put them together, she screamed and screamed and screamed at people get back I didn't say now you know it was constant constant and she did write all the directors for feedback at the end and I said you have to earn you earn that moment of shouting at a group you had had no relationship with them before if one of us had said to our own group you really have to stop talking while other people are working we've earned that we've earned that moment because they know that we are with them trying to make something work for an audience. We're, we're collective. And I was really tactless, I think, and I never was invited to work with them again. <laughs> but that was when it first occurred to me that you can earn that. You can earn that. And I worked with a group on a photography project where they were creating photographic images of utopia. And we did loads and loads of work around utopia. And they were so fantastic, this group. They said in week two, don't like utopia because my, my utopia isn't your utopia. And so how would we fix that? And they said it'd be boring if there were no problems. They were, they were so engaged. They were brilliant. When we came to create the images, half the group went into incredibly cliched image. And it was back on familiar territory. They were scared about making the photographs. So they, they found very sort of uh, hackneyed images, which you could see anywhere. And we were able to say, we're not going to let you go down that road because we know you've thought more about this. Mm. We know we've heard you. So I think we had earned the right to close a door and say, we're, we're absolutely not going to go down that road. It's not interesting and they trusted us. That um, youth theatre experience I had, that was really, in a way, crystallised that for me, that sense that you, you can earn mm. taking on a stronger role because mm. you've built something with the group. Mm. It's about challenge, isn't it? That's how I see my role as a coach in many ways. I can be respectful. I can be kind. I can support and be a cheerleader establishing that trust that really safe space I can also challenge yes and point things out that people aren't perhaps seeing about themselves their blind spots and the things that they're missing and that is and I think trust is such a big word and something I feel we're lacking in the wider scheme of things yeah 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 Um, I think that this sort of very commonly used term safe space I think it can 
misused to suggest there's no risk and there's no pushing. And actually, mm. that's not what you want. You want a space in which you can take a risk. Creativity is risky. If everybody comes in and leaves the same, then you probably haven't done your job in terms of creativity. And it's interesting, something I've discovered through a group of American students at Goldsmiths is that there's a lot of writing now in the States about brave space, replacing mm. the term safe space with brave space. Mm. And of course, it, that also doesn't sum everything up, but it's about trying to encourage people. How do you how do you create a space where people feel safe enough, but to be brave? Mm. Rather it's different than being intent- safe enough to stay safe. Yeah, so. it's a different intention, isn't it? Yeah. So how is this all yeah. working for you online <laughs> and, and not in the room with people? Very, very challenging, particularly initially. And I would say that I began by only seeing the loss, really. I lost most of my freelance work in a day and a half. It was just cancelled. Goldsmiths went online with a group for a lot of them. It was an incredibly depressing situation, especially students who lived alone or students who had poor technology. We had one student who had no technology apart from his phone because he used the university libraries and the library closed. And I think when we look back at it, I think we will see that as a really bad move and that every, every effort should have been made to make COVID secure spaces for students to study because I think it had a terrible impact on a lot of them. To sit and write a dissertation on your bed on a phone is just a really bad situation, I think. I also realised how much I receive when I work in a room. And although I've got much more used to online working and I've found much better ways to work, I would say there is still a level, there's a layer that I don't get back and a kind of nourishment that I don't get back. So I think that's something we need to think about I absolutely appreciate that there have been certain things I've done where there's been able to be an international audience I have students at Goldsmiths this term who've gone home and they're saving their rent and it doesn't we don't know doesn't make any difference to us at all I have a student who has MS and this has made her life much easier she liked coming in she's a performer she liked contact but she'd always have to rest when she came in and miss some class it's made everything possible for her so there are going to be some uh, kind of pearls that have come out of the grit I think but yesterday I had a lovely conversation with one of my students and at the end of it she said to me oh thank you I don't feel two-dimensional anymore I just feel like I'm a flat person these days and that conversation made me feel three-dimensional again Mm. a really nice thing happened with a magic me project we had begun a project about climate change with teenage girls and women who are mostly probably over about 65 and we'd we'd only had four weeks of it so we'd had quite a kind of gentle start once lockdown happened we didn't know what to do so there was a gap first of all and then the staff at Magic Me did a fantastic bit of research checking in with the older people what were the ways in which they would be willing to carry on communicating and that meant two people who would come onto an online call one person who would answer letters but no phone calls or online two people who liked phone call two people who would uh, like to receive letters but they weren't willing to go out to the post box so they wouldn't uh, post anything back to us and then we met quite a wall with the school who quite understandably said you can't have online access to the girls without us being present and that's really complicated and they're struggling at the moment so we will send them stuff and then they, if they send it back to us we'll send it to you so it was very wow. very challenging time mm. my fellow artist Elsa James and I came up with the idea of creating a zine and that we would bring together just stuff they'd been thinking about in terms of climate change, but also in the light of COVID. And then it didn't really matter that what was coming back to us was coming in very different forms. So she and I created an activity pack and that went out online and in, in the post. And then I had a great Zoom call with two of the women who got really feisty and one of the women said, I'm walking around like a target because I'm, she said, 
I'm Asian, I'm old. She said, there's COVID, there's BLM, you know, I'm, and I'm not going to get off the streets. I'm going to carry on walking around, even though everything seems to be about me at the moment. And then the other woman had been teaching her neighbour's daughter how to garden by getting on a stepladder on her side of the wall and leaning over the wall at a safe distance and showing this little girl what to do. So we had, that was a fantastic conversation. And then I had a phone call with a woman who I've always found very, very restless in groups. She moves around, she doesn't finish tasks. She pinches all the biscuits to take home with her, which is completely fine, but was always a really interesting. Also, because she just used to just bung them in her handbag. I always wondered what the hell the bottom of her handbag looked like. So this time I had a phone call with her and it was so different. We spoke for about 40 minutes and then I took notes all the way through and then I edited the notes into a poem and we sent it back to her and she was really happy with it and we put it in the zine. Mm. And I don't know if I would ever have found out that actually she's just not great in groups and it doesn't mean she hasn't got a lot to say. And we've never got from her all the loveliness that she's got to say because she's so distracted in a group. And I thought, well, this is very interesting and it's a real argument for running projects in a really multimodal way so that people can opt to have a call Mm. or they can opt to post you something if they can't be there in person. So I think it's a real challenge ahead, actually, uh, and a real opportunity to find ways to involve different people in different ways in the future. Mm. And so Elsa took all the artwork and created a wonderful zine. We got very little back from young people. I think when an email arrived from school, it was school. It belonged to school. We included their work, but there wasn't a huge amount of it. But of course, what everybody received then was a a beautiful zine where the group were represented. Mm. And uh, so they, I hope they felt that somehow the project was finished in a way that brought their voices together. I think one thing I've picked up on recently is hearing people saying how much they're missing accidental conversations and bumping into people. So I think that's perhaps a bit more in our awareness that we're we're so limited, really, with who we choose to contact, perhaps. Maybe that's something that will be a real pleasure in the future. Although I also think we're all going to be massively affected and it'll take us a long time to be able to be in crowded spaces, if that's possible. Mm. I, I think, especially with the length of time that we're needing to stay in. Yeah, we're I think going you're to, right behave differently yeah I can feel myself now you know the we've got a dog so we we will take the dog out for a walk but there is that sense of um, closing in just I I feel like I'm sort of losing the skills in and how to socialize and how to have that small talk those micro moments it's it's the stuff that happens on the outskirts yes and yeah as you say sort of and even going for a walk if I see a friend and you know we we will chat but there's this sense of oh should we be doing this and we're sort of standing far apart and and then if the kids are there it's like come back come back it's like an invisible boundary yes yes and so part of our challenge will be how we break that down and feel safe enough to step over that and let surprise accidental moments come in yes I think that is going to be that is going to change and I I think it's very important to keep in our minds that we can't yet look back on this so what we're trying to learn from it is partial because we're still right in the middle of it and something new happens all the time so this is very new I think to feel that we're in an unending lockdown And it isn't unending, but they won't put a date on it. Whereas Mm. the others, they've said 12 weeks, four weeks, this, you know, they, which I can understand. Now this is just, well, let's see how this goes. And I think that feels very different. So I think trying to kind of have any kind of bird's eye view of it is a bit tricky. 
I understand the need to do it. And I'm glad there are people analysing the situation. I'm absolutely addicted to a Radio 4 programme called <laughs> More or Less, where they just take all the statistics that are coming out and they go through them and say, well, that's not quite right. That depends on this. I, I really appreciate that. But it's good to remember, we can't reflect back. We've got to, we're just in it. Mm. Yeah, so one of the questions is, what is it we can control? How can we decide each day how we feel, what we need to perhaps do to make us feel a little better, how we can get through? And what is it we can actually take responsibility for in all of this? Knowing that there are so many things we don't know, we don't know, so many uncertainties. In the 12-week lockdown, I was incredibly organised. I, I look back in awe at myself then <laughs> because I put onto the calendar weeks 1 to 12 as if, you know, what, knowing what I know now, I think that was a really useless thing to do. I sent a postcard every day for 12 weeks. Yeah. So whatever 12 times 7 is, I and I, if I hadn't done it in the morning, I made sure I did it. And I'm the lucky possessor of about a thousand postcards because I buy them at every exhibition. I can't stop myself. So I've got loads. And that was wonderful because I wrote to people I haven't seen for ages and all my siblings and all my nieces and nephews got one. But that also gave me a discipline. And I did two long walks a day and I did yoga every day. And I was so organized and I've really let that slip. And I think that's interesting that... I was able to manage it because it seemed to me to be for a limited amount of time. And now that it's ongoing, I'm much worse at remembering the things that, that helped me and actually writing the postcards helped me and doing yoga helped me. And it's not was not just about sort of being good. They, they were really contributing to me. Mm. But also I heard a wonderful piece of advice from a psychologist in those in that time, which was that he said, you, you need to invent a task you can finish every day. Yeah. So don't give yourself, don't say, I'm going to clear out the garage and three sheds. Say, I'm going to clear out my sock drawer. Mm. I'm going to finally throw out the two tin openers that don't work. <laughs> you know, and he said, it doesn't matter what the size of it is. Yeah. You need to finish it because when the world it's unfinished. It's in chaos. We don't know the destination. We don't know the route map. We humans need to accomplish mm. a few things. Mm. And the first thing I did that really made me feel good was to mend a puncture in my bike's wheel. Mm. And I needed help to do it. So I had to ask for help. But it just made me feel back managing, somehow managing a bit of my life. Mm. yeah I agree I have totally lowered my expectations of what I can achieve every day <laughs> um, and actually I, I kind of gave up writing long to-do lists a while ago and I have very short to-do lists but one thing I will think about every morning is what's the one thing I want to achieve today and that might be a bit of a chunky piece of work or it might be I just want to sit in the kitchen and have a cup of tea for five minutes or hide or hide somewhere so I'm not interrupted but oh, it's just one thing I can focus yes. on yeah. and there is some discipline in letting the other stuff go yes because yeah. it just otherwise it just weighs too heavy and then you feel bad and you feel guilty and you feel like you're not operating in the way you should all that yes. shoulding that we do yes. on ourselves yeah I think it's amazing how what a very sort of short corridor it is into the bit of ourselves that can't, I can't do that. And I, I'm doing funding applications at the moment. And that is such a danger for me all the time is thinking I can't do them and I won't get them. And I, I won't know how, if I get the money, I won't know how to do the project. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very close by. Mm, it all is. The time. These are your saboteurs. Yes. Yes. That's, that's a good way to think of them. Yeah. You have yeah. your judge. Everybody has a judge saboteur. Yeah very strong very critical about yourself and others yeah and then you have your accomplice saboteur mine is pleaser so I want to be liked I want everyone to love me yeah and I will yeah. do anything <laughs> to make that happen I'm not yeah I, I don't do that as much now because I'm much more aware of it but knowing those voices yeah because then you can talk to them and say I know you're trying to help me 
but you're not helping me. You need to leave now. Yes, that's very good. I haven't asked you, what does do good and do well mean for you? Well, I think the do good one, I would say that all of us are helping to tilt the seesaw of common good, the common good, in one way or another. And although I absolutely appreciate that this could be a massively guilt-inducing thing to think about, I think if if there's anything that you can do to be on the side that brings the balance more towards the common good, then do it if you can do it. So think where you're spending your money. Think where you are going on holiday. Think how you're treating people who are not very well paid, but who take away your bins or who guide you in a car park. Think about the value, how the values that you, you say you hold can be transmitted in your work. Think about your complicitness in tilting things the other way. Yeah. So think about, also think about who, whose lives do you not know about? Just read novels, watch films, find out so that you're not continually emphasising your own perspective on the world. So when I say it like this, it sounds exhausting. <laughs> and it sounds also like you could spend a whole lot of time beating yourself up. But for me, it's, it's just a really important thing of that I try to be, I don't know if I even try to be, I just am mindful of a lot of the time is thinking, where am I putting my weight on that balance? And I cannot see how our future will unfold well in the world. And I would say we've had a year when we've seen that it might not unfold well, not just a year, the whole climate emergency tells us that we're very near a danger point. And I think that if you can move your weight so that what you do is on that side of the balance, then just see what you can do. See what you can do. And I guiltily throw a toothpaste tube into the bin, knowing that somewhere in Bromley there is a collection point for that so it doesn't go to landfill. So I do all of that thinking, ah, oh, can I be bothered? You know, can I find it out? All of that. But I I think that that is just the humane, that's the humane way to be, really, is to try to be putting our weight in that way, in that direction, where we can. Do well, I guess that feels to me about about joy, actually. That's the word that pops into my head about how to nourish yourself, how to put yourself in situations where you experience joy and happiness and affection and laughter and the things which are good for you so that you remember to feed yourself and you remember to, to tap into the stuff that for you is at the heart of it. And something which I say to students at Goldsmiths is that we don't all have the same motor that drives us. And if you totally lose touch with why you're doing what you do, for one person, they might need to make sure they are spending much more time on their own art form. They're painting, they're they're singing for themselves, they're dancing on their own, they're performing again. They're they're getting right back to the roots of their art form. For somebody else, it might be that they've really missed the world of education. And I met a theatre director recently who's earned a lot of money and has taken a year off his directing work to go back into schools and do playwriting groups in schools because he really missed that world of direct work with young people. So think about what fuels you. Maybe your politics fuel you. And you need to go leafleting or get online and go to some good debates. We, we're all going to be fueled in different ways. What fuels you? I think I'm I'm absolutely addicted to kind of human connection. I I really don't want to sound like I'm not a nature lover because I am a nature lover, <laughs> but I I feel more energised by let's talk old days in the olden days being on a bus and seeing witnessing that two people have struck up a conversation and that they're having fun and they're laughing and it's an unlikely pair of people I find that so energizing so I would put myself in situations where there's the possibility for kind of human exchange either by accident or purposefully and then I do think of myself as an artist, so I want to make work together. I want to. I want something to come out of that. And I'm the thing I'm fundraising for at the moment. I'm really interested in how, when we come up with words to describe something, they they also have a kind of physical presence. So we're going to make letters. We're going to make 
tiny letters and giant letters and then we're going to mm. make words out of them and break the words and stitch the words back together and hide them under things and display them but really be a person who's dealing with their words out in front of them holding them and showing them and thinking about that and for me that's that is a very important thread mm. is is how do we then make how are we makers of something together as well as all that comes out of dialogue and being together how do we then make out of that space yes that's so fascinating and if there are any funders listening please please give <laughs> <you> some money. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there is something i think we can spend so much time in our heads with words and i, I talk to people about values and i them to think about what are the words that mean something for you they're action-based they're the they're the threads that runs through you and I love that idea of then making it tangible yes. because it takes it out of the head yes. and becomes much more sensory I did a big community show where one of the scenes was a young new young mayor of Tower Hamlets and she'd been asked to make her inaugural speech, but she wasn't allowed to use the word community because the general feeling was that it had been debased and it had been overused. So the space that we were in had a huge container, which they used for storage, which, of course, is metal. So Amanda Mascarenas, the designer I was working with, created a giant fridge magnet word display so the mayor of tower hamlets then said to people can you create some sentences for me so the audience had to go over and make sentences and then there was a great character who was a he was sweeping up he was the janitor and he was sweeping up what he was sweeping up was scrabble letters all over the floor and he would people would put things up and people were putting things up like togetherness is love and he'd say oh for god's sake you know, this is, I'm a cleaner. I know what it's like around here. You know, togetherness is dumping all your rubbish out. I mean, he, he kind of created a counterpoint. Mm. So people had to think a bit harder mm. about what they put. But it was, there was actually something really lovely about that. And then I got asked to do a workshop in an Anglican parish in Haggerston, uh, where the the vicar had been a visual, she'd worked in visual arts and she had did loads of arts provision with the congregation. So I took all these words along that we'd used in that show and asked people just to put them in the church in a place where that word had a new meaning. And what people did was so extraordinary. It was so extraordinary. And I regret terribly that I only managed to take about five pictures because I was too busy working mm -hmm. with people but there were stories of loneliness and conversation and memory and it was absolutely staggering and I do think that if we had said to people can you tell us about what you feel when you sit here or can you tell us your memory of that we would have got something so different mm -hmm. but because they had great big shiny words that they could put together or have alone and they had to travel around the building and really think actually it's not that big end there where the altar is that matters to me it's the kitchen mm. we found the word love on a tray in the kitchen and <laughs> you know and then something a, a whole lot of words about loneliness on a pew and nobody had to own up to their bit of words and they were able to do them quite privately so I, I think both of those projects have sort of got this in my head to do more with and to think about three-dimensional letters and words. Mm. And then also what happens if they, if they don't work, if a word doesn't work for you, if it breaks, if it's mangled in some way. So I'm still at the lovely <laughs> experimental phase where we actually haven't had to try out any of these ideas and see if they work. It's, it's all in our heads. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the best bits, <laughs> I think, <laughs> what's possible. Pre-testing. Um, yeah, yes. yeah. Um, what, I, I just wanted to ask you, because you've got such a sense of how you want to be in the world. And I've often got this from talking to you, and I always feel like when I get the chance to talk to you, it's a bit of a therapy session. It's like very grounding <laughs> because you have such a sense of self, how you want to be. Where did that come from, do you think? I guess I've always felt, found it 
so important to feel that I'm in, I'm in the right place. So I I do very consciously seek out the places, the, the the settings where I feel I'm I am myself. Both my parents were people who followed a vocation, as it were. So my dad was a vicar, and my mum was a, an artist. She was a, she trained as an illustrator, and then she quite quickly started kind of running art groups, and then she mm. trained as an art therapist, and she was somebody who would say, "Oh, should we?" do a local festival and kind of get it together somehow and my dad was a very questioning person so he didn't take for granted that you know when he was 25 he was ordained he kept thinking about it and getting cross about it and exploring it and doing different things so I I definitely grew up with that sense that that was a kind of responsibility actually to work out where you should be I'm sure that affected me but I I think I'm interested in in this sort of discomfort around ideas of being an artist. And I, I know that sometimes the idea is that it's a very, it's very selfish. And I certainly, sometimes I feel that sort of critical feeling. I sense in myself some of that drivenness, that selfishness, which is like an interior thing, an interior light, which I try to match up with an exterior light or something. So that yeah. I, there is a selfishness to it. I definitely do things and then I think right I don't want to do that anymore and people say to me oh why don't you carry on doing that and I think nope no I it is quite intuitive I don't know if it makes a huge amount of sense Mm. but I I do feel that and I think that is something to do with artistry is you keep sort of sniffing for the place you need to be Mm. and I remember I I started in stage management then I thought this isn't quite I don't feel I'm at the heart of it so then I I decided to try out being a performer then I was a performer for quite a few years and I really liked that but I started thinking oh I don't know if I'm at the heart of it yet and then I started writing and directing and I quite liked that but I kept thinking oh is this so this sort of desire to be at the heart of it I guess and are you now at the heart of it I, I do feel quite kind of relaxed now I I mean obviously what I want is a private funder who just says, I think your creative work is so amazing, Sue, that you don't have to go through these funding applications. I'm just going to fund you to do them. Because part, there's definitely part of me which finds this endless proving, yeah. oh, endlessly proving who you are and what you can do, yeah. really quite hard work. Uh, so that that's difficult, although it helps you articulate the work. I think that's very, very important. I think it's been difficult this sort of I've had sort of eight years I think of part-time teaching and part-time pra- being a practitioner and the difficulty is that neither of them really fit into half a week so they both spill mm. and that's quite challenging but I do think that's been a really amazing combination because to be given a lot of time to think about what you're doing and to be with students who say but why why is it like that and couldn't it be like that or students because they're very international say you're assuming primary education is creative well it isn't where I come from or you're assuming that audiences in mainstream theatre don't interrupt the show well in my country they do interrupt the show they get up and they interrupt the show so always being challenged Mm. to get out of your centrality of experience Mm. has been absolutely amazing and I've loved that and that's led me to to work with companies to help them reflect on what they're doing, which I've really enjoyed. Mm. But I know that I couldn't do that full time because I need to also be in spaces where you get there and the door's locked. You get there and not everybody turns up or the people who you invited didn't turn up. Other people came instead. <laughs> All the bumpiness of community practice, I think I would I would miss it terribly. And and the sense of making work, mm. of, of that all impressions are very fleeting, but I think capturing them, just kind of capturing them mm. a bit every now and again is such a wonderful, wonderful, important thing that we do. Mm. Yeah. I think you're right. Before we close, before I ask you my, my <laughs> final couple of questions, just to say, if I become a philanthropist, Sue, when? Yeah. No, yeah. scrub that. When I become a philanthropist I will fund you to do whatever you like now that's an unexpected outcome of doing a podcast (laughs) so what's next for you and how can people find out more about you and what you're up to well the project that I've been talking about is called breaks and joins so 
the whole project is about the idea of repair and we're trying to connect in it actual repair so mending your socks mending an old nighty, mending your toaster all of that with how we want to repair ourselves how we can repair our communities and also how we live with what's broken that we accept that not everything can be broken so there's a lot of different ways into it and what we hope that we're going to do is partner with community groups who already have a kind of life in their community centre but are really mm -hmm. interested in, in exploring this idea. We've been able to do a lovely bit of research and development through the Being Human Festival all online. Amazingly, we did sewing workshops online, we did fixing things workshops online, but also a Bangladeshi theatre director talked about the situation in Bangladesh and how the kind of pluralism could return to that country, how you could mend the divisions. Another person led a group on living with what's broken. We did a poetry and mending workshop. So we were able to just test the ideas. So at the moment, that's where we're going to. And we also crowdsourced films. So people sent us films of themselves mending. And those are all on my website, which is www w.sumeo.co.uk that's my big project and then we're trying to get the climate change project back on its feet with magic me and they're at magicme.co.uk in time for the glasgow summit so that mm. our uh, young women and older women can get something to glasgow to say what they're thinking about mm. and what they want to happen now that all sounds amazing so if people can find out about you, your website, and I'm going to put your Twitter and other bits and bobs Thank in the show you. notes as well. Thank you so much. It's been, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. I will speak to you very soon. Great. Bye. Thank you, Sarah. Bye. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation please do keep giving me any feedback about the episodes it's so nice to hear when a conversation has perhaps changed a perspective or given you a light bulb moment or that you just enjoy hearing about the work that other people are doing and I really want to know what you think is missing from these episodes as well. As change makers, what do you want to know about? What will help you to do good and do well? We are coming up to the end of season one. We've got a couple of episodes left and I am going to take a break. But I have been thinking about season two and the content that that will include. Continue to hear me talk with changemakers, but I'm also going to be talking to psychologists and coaches and people in the well-being world and broadening out how can we really help ourselves be resilient and keep doing our best in this change making world so if you've got any ideas or if you'd like to come on as a guest just send me an email it's and the word a-n-d and sarah at sarahfox.co.uk i'd love to hear from you take very good care